Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. It's time to grab your friends and family near and far to walk together towards a cure for ocular melanoma. Each year, roughly 7,000 individuals worldwide are diagnosed with this rare eye cancer. Because it is a rare orphan cancer, this diagnosis often feels lonely and hopeless. We challenge you from all across the world to join us in January 2024 in taking 7,000 steps each day of the month in honor of those patients who will begin to walk the path of ocular melanoma this year, as well as all the patients currently living with this rare disease. We believe we are all created for impact, and while alone, we may not feel we can do much to bring about change, we know that we are so much better together. Walk with us not only to kickstart a healthy new year, but also to see progress in ocular melanoma research. As you participate in Steps for Sight, every step you take and every dollar raised will bring us closer to funding critical research needed for a cure. To increase the impact of this worldwide initiative, Acure Insight is partnering with the Melanoma Research Alliance in 2024 to maximize the benefits from the funds raised. Acure Insight will once again work with MRA to jointly issue the grant award and make the announcement in the following calendar year. The money we raised last year will be matched by MRA to fund a two-year research grant for ocular melanoma. See the STEPS registration page for more details. This year, with your help, we can fund another actionable research project exclusively for ocular melanoma. We are always better together, so don't wait. Register and start a team for Steps for Sight today. All right, you guys, thank you so much for joining us on the I Believe podcast. Um, We are here with Dr. Lauren Dalvin from the Mayo Clinic, and I'm actually super excited to have her because if you guys didn't see what was happening this last week, um, there was actually a conference specifically for eyes and eye health, and um, we'll get into that in just a sec. But just so that you guys know, kind of by way of information, just in case anybody else is maybe just not following Facebook or you're not getting our email updates, we do have a walk that just happened this weekend in LA. So if you're from LA and we have the next date up on the website, just watch for that. Get registered for next year if you plan to attend next year and tell your friends and family in the LA area. We've also got the Scottsdale looking for a cure that's coming up this Saturday. That's where I'm going to be. Myself and Dr. Mosier are super excited and we have a huge crowd um, already planned to come out. I think we're, we're, we're pretty close to beating Palo Alto. I'd have to double check the numbers, but I think we have to beat Palo Alto by having 244 people registered. And last I checked, we were at 241. So we were pretty close. Um, anyway, so Scottsdale coming up and that's on November 19th. Please like come and register, come walk with us or just consider donating. And then the last couple that we have this year are going to be in Houston and in Dallas, Fort Worth. Dallas, Fort Worth is on December 9th and Houston is on December 10th. Yes. I keep track of all of this information in my brain. It's, it's a mess. Um, but I am so glad to have Dr. Dalvin here with us. So Dr. Dalvin, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks again for having me. It's always a pleasure to be here with you. Well, we are so glad to have someone um, 
just as excited and passionate about what you do here on the podcast to talk to us. Um, and I know I kind of put you on the spot for this one, but we are hoping that you can share a little about what happened at the American Academy of Ophthalmology convention that you were attending this last week. Absolutely. And kind of, I guess, yeah, like where did ocular melanoma fit in this? Yeah, this is really for ophthalmology, probably our biggest clinical meeting of the year. So this is a huge endeavor. Um, And every subspecialty has its own little section and we have our own subspecialty society day as well. Um, So our subspecialty society is the American Academy for Ophthalmic Oncologists and Pathologists. So we get a really big, long name. Um, but it's a really awesome collaborative group because we get our ophthalmologists, our pathologists, and we actually had medical oncologists as well come to this meeting. And so we've had an opportunity to talk about some really exciting things coming up for patients with uveal melanoma. And so I just thought I would touch on three clinical trials that are already or about to get started that may be of interest. And so Number one is a trial for patients who have not yet had their tumor treated. Um, And this is with Aura Biosciences. And you may have heard about the earlier phases of this trial. It's now moving into a phase three trial where they do a suprachoroidal injection of nanoparticle therapy. And these nanoparticles are designed to hone in on the cancer cells. And then we can use a photodynamic therapy laser to activate those nanoparticles to kill the cancer. And so this is going to be for patients who have potentially smaller tumors, tumors that normally would really devastate somebody's vision if we had to treat with radiation. So sometimes we hesitate on treating these tumors because it's such a big thing to lose vision. So the hope is that this is going to be potentially an effective treatment that can do something good to cure the cancer without harming vision. So this is really exciting for the future of our patients. Um, and I'm hopeful. Oh, this is so cool. It's like, very cool. So cool. I mean, I just, I just know, you know, personally a handful of, of patients who have had smaller tumors and they've lost vision because it was too close to the center of vision or it was too close to the optic nerve or just something went whack and they didn't expect them to lose vision, but they did. And this is, this is seriously going to be life changing. So I guess, you know, if you're listening on Facebook and you see someone who is about to have treatment and they have a smaller tumor or, you know, they've posted, Hey, I'm looking for a doctor or I'm looking for this. Make sure to tell them about the Aura trial and make sure that they are checking with their doctor to see if that's an option. Um, obviously, like you said, it's not going to be for everyone. It does sound like it's for smaller tumors, which is not going to be every single tumor, but that is still something that, you know, we on Facebook can help catch those people before they head into surgery for plaque on a two millimeter tumor that could be treated this way. Yeah, I I think it's absolutely going to be game-changing for some patients. And then on the other side of it, for patients who do go on to have radiation, there's a trial um, with the DRCR network, which has been a big force in things like diabetic retinopathy. So this is a major group that's used to doing big clinical trials in, in retina. And we're so lucky that we now get to come together as an ocular oncology community and have one of these trials for patients to hopefully see if we can prevent or better manage radiation retinopathy, radiation side effects after we do something like plaque or proton for uveal melanoma. Um, so these patients in this trial are potentially going to have steroid treatment or anti-VEGF injections or we're going to watch and wait, which is a lot of times what we do. And we're going to see, is doing something right away the best option? If doing something right away after treatment is the best option, should that be anti-VEGF or should that be steroid? 
or should we wait and see? And at what point should we start intervention? And the reality is we have very little data on all of this because we've never had a good prospective trial. And so this is going to answer a lot of questions for us in our field. And I think this is really going to help us hone in on what can we do to best preserve vision, even when we do have to do radiation. So just to clarify, these are going to be patients who they should have already had or be coming up on radiation treatment of some kind. Um, would that include proton beam therapy as well as plaque? So this is, I think, primarily going to focus on, on plaque radiation, but the same okay. principles are going to apply to all of our patients gotcha. who have any type of radiation. So this is really going to inform, I think, how we treat anyone who has radiotherapy for uveal melanoma. And the time that you want to say something is really before you get treated, because you do need to have a screening visit and they do need to do um, some particular images and some particular types of treatments like a steroid injection at the time that you're having that radiation treatment. So if you're interested in participating in something like this, you want to say something early. Um, and this is going to be ready to open quite soon and there are going to be a lot of sensors we've done a really great job of coming together as a community and fortunately because the retina doctors are so used to working with this drcr network for other trials we have a lot of our retina doctors on board too so hopefully that's going to make this trial more accessible awesome okay i'm super excited about this and like you said this one is up and coming not quite not quite open yet but we'll be recruiting very, very soon. Um, and just to backtrack, the the Aura Biosciences, that one is recruiting now? So that one is up at some sites and getting rolling at other sites. So they are ready for recruitment. Um, I don't think that we've gotten our first patient yet because we do have a little bit of, of a narrower window on exactly the right yeah, patients for, sure. for this trial. Um, but that one is ready to go. And do you know, in a phase three trial, how many patients are they hoping to potentially have in a phase three trial? Yeah, I, I believe it's somewhere around 80 patients. Okay. So, and realistically, like you said, because it's such a narrow type of patient and a narrow size of tumor, this could take a little while. Um, but the fact that it's in phase three is a good thing, right? Phase three trials are always going to like present a little bit differently. Um, and phase three means they're they're comparing to, doesn't it mean they're, they're comparing to standard of care treatment? Or is that not the case with this specific phase three? Slightly different. These are, you know, potentially really early stage tumors where sometimes the right option for that tumor might even be observation because they're not necessarily definitively need to have radiation cancers that are all in this study. Um, so they're not going to be necessarily comparing to plaque if patients don't do well in the treatment, they're going to be eligible, of course, to go on to receive that standard of care plaque radiation, but this is going to compare to an observational arm. Okay, that makes sense. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, okay, so then let's move on to number three. What was the third one that you heard about that was super exciting? Yeah, number three, I think I am most, most excited for this. Um, so this is from IDEA, and, this, and from IDEA, there's actually two studies so there's one study that's really probably going to be driven by the ocular oncology community and one that's going to be driven by the medical oncology community. So from our standpoint, we are really excited to have a neoadjuvant to adjuvant trial. And, and these are big words. So let's, let's talk about what these mean. So neoadjuvant 
is going to be for patients who have not yet had any treatment for their eye melanoma. And they're going to give a drug called durovacertib to try to treat the eye melanoma before we do anything else. So there's going to be two arms in this trial. One is going to be really big tumors that would otherwise have to have an eye removed. And the hope is that by giving this drug, we can shrink the tumor and avoid eye removal. And the second arm is going to be patients who would otherwise have radiation. And we're going to try to shrink the tumors and hopefully give a lower radiation dose. So neoadjuvant, meaning that we're going to give this before we would do our standard of care treatment. And then for patients who tolerate the drug well and who hopefully have a response, they can move into this adjuvant phase where they're going to continue to receive the drug in the hopes that maybe this can reduce their risk of developing metastasis in the future. So I think this is really exciting, having that adjuvant phase and potentially being able to save eyes or again, reduce radiation dose that can preserve vision is really going to be a game changer. And on the medical oncology side, they're going to combine this drug with crizotinib and they're going to try to treat metastasis. And so I'm really excited to partner with our medical oncologist here. And I know a lot of my colleagues are so excited to partner with their medical oncologists at their institutions so that we can offer both arms of this trial to our patients. Oh, that's going to be so exciting. And I love, uh, I love that this is really just, I mean, everybody's trying to cover, or at least it seems right here, like that IDEO Biosciences is really trying to cover everybody. They're trying to cover from the beginning of diagnosis all the way through to metastases. And um, obviously we hope that nobody ever has to deal with metastases, but we know that's not the case that, I mean, it's just not how it has worked historically. And I can, I also am like sitting here thinking about your living library and how that like relies on a nucleation. And I'm like, well, I guess like if it doesn't work and a nucleation still works, then a living library part can still be an option. Um, but anyway, so I'm just sitting here thinking like, just for you and what you've talked about before, I'm like, oh, obviously we don't want to enucleate if we don't have to, like speaking from experience, but also like, this is just going to be neat. It's going to be neat to see how this goes. Um, so I look forward to hearing more from them. And I would assume that we can probably follow like for, you know, just research updates and things, probably just IDEO Biosciences directly. I know they're, they're, um, what do you call it, their newsroom or their like news updates. They're pretty uh, solid about updating about what's going on. So anyway, well, that's so awesome. Thank you so much for sharing uh, just kind of directly what was going on last week. Um, I know Melody and Suzanne were there representing a cure in sight at our booth for patient advocacy and just networking and talking to all of the doctors and the physicians that were there. Uh, but we are so grateful to you guys who are, you know, 100% part of a team and part of this, you know, part of this movement to try to make sure that ophthalmology knows about OM and um, that we teach about it, but also that we have some really awesome avenues of treatment. So this is super exciting stuff. Yeah, I, I think it's fantastic. And what a great era that we now have all of these clinical trials popping up. If you go back just a few years, we weren't talking about clinical trials at our academy meetings. So that is so mm -hmm. exciting to me that we are now. No, and it's it's so powerful too that I, I I love I love the idea that they already you know because they've already got the metastatic treatment like in the past when you know we've we've discussed this idea of adjuvant treatment it's been that we have to wait we've had to wait to know um, you know does it work in the metastatic setting first and if it works in the metastatic setting then we can go back and we can attempt you know initial treatment and then adjuvant treatment or you know something like that but because of you know kind of the way that 
this trial has been structured and these two arms have been structured, it's it's basically contingent on, you know, do you respond well for primary treatment? Yes. We already know you have a large tumor. You probably have a high risk of metastases just based on size, like biopsy aside. So we're just going to assume you need this medicine to keep going. Like that's just, to me, that's so smart. Um, and I hope that we can continue seeing that pattern as more, you know, more research happens with other drug development companies. Anyway, okay. Well, is there anything else from AAO that you want to cover that you're excited about? I think those are the big things. You know, it's, it's such a great meeting and I just love that we continue to build our collaborative community. Um, la, 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 la. Uh, I have a personal question I will forward on to you um, in the future. I'm not going to not going to chat about this one live, but um, just keep in mind as you're listening live, personal medical advice cannot be distributed over the internet, um, but we are happy to um, answer questions. Uh, just send those in through the Facebook or the YouTube chat, and I will front those to Dr. Dalvin where she can see them. Um, but we're going to move on to our main topic, which is to just chat about really just the patient journey um, through OM and, you know, just how, how this can look for people with, with the caveat that, you know, we're going to talk about talk about this, I guess, as generally as we possibly can, but it really looks so different for everyone. Um, and so that's kind of one of the caveats to this conversation. Um, so Dr. Dalvin, I think when we had talked in our outline, you had said to maybe have me kind of just outline my initial diagnosis, like yeah, experience. I, I think so do you want me to do that? so important to understand what it feels like as a patient to get this type of news. So I really wanted to hear your perspective. Okay. So for me, at least, um, this was something that was completely out of the blue. Um, I actually lost vision pretty suddenly, just kind of overnight in one eye. Um, it just diminished really rapidly. And within a couple of days I had decided, okay, something's off and it's not getting better. So I should probably call my doctor. Um, so I did, I had, it was a Friday morning. They got me in right away because they were like, Oh wow, that's, that's not good. You need to be here like yesterday. And so I went into my optometrist, ophthalmologist's office, and the optometrist did some imaging and she, you know, dilated my eyes and she just couldn't really see much. Um, and the picture that she showed me kind of comparing eyes side to side just showed a lot of black and it, it just, it wasn't a very high definition image. And so she just told me, I think that you just have some bleeding under the retina. We probably need to just send you in for emergency retina surgery. And like the way that she's explaining it, it's like, this is a big deal, but also like we can fix this. And, uh, so I was sent literally within, within 45 minutes of her telling me that they had an appointment lined up for me at another retina doctor, um, or at a retina specialist office. And I was shuttled over there by my mom because my eyes were so heavily dilated to look at everything that I just couldn't drive and, um, went, waited in the office. And of course it's the, you know, the height of the pandemic. And so we're all masked. And I just remember like taking this picture of like, I'm here. I'm supposed to have my retina fixed. Apparently it's torn. Um, and that was what I was expecting was, you know, my retina is torn and I need it fixed and obviously not great, but like fixable. Um, and so I went in through this doctor's office and went through all the tests. They did, you know, some various dye tests they did. Um, I think by the time we finished, you know, with all the photo photo type tests, then they did an ultrasound. And I remember the ultrasound was probably the most uncomfortable part of it because you're like laying in this chair and they're like, the nurse has me like tipping my head, like as far back as I can just, and she's, I mean, she was on my eye for like at least 30 minutes. And it was, it felt like an inordinate amount of time. And I was just like, but at this point I still had no idea. I just was completely, completely expecting that I was going to be getting, you know, retina surgery that day and that they just needed to have good, good ideas of what was going on in my eye to do that. 
um, I come in or the doctor comes in and he just says, you know, why do you think you're here? And I remember that he, um, his name was Dr. D'Souza, I think, or maybe it was Souza, but I nicknamed my tumor after him because it was just such a, it was, it was just a way for my brain to make some kind of fun out of this. Um, uh, but he, he just said, you know, why do you think you're here? And I told him, well, I have a torn retina and it needs fixed. And he said, well, you do have a torn retina, uh, but I can't fix it like today. Maybe I can fix it in the future, but we actually need to treat, like there's an eye tumor, like we need to treat the tumor first. And, and it was like, kind of like one of those moments where you, you feel a little separated from reality maybe. And, and like, I just remember like I heard him and like the word went in and then it went out. And then I just didn't quite like it, it literally, it was a Friday afternoon. He told me, don't go on Google. And I just remember thinking a tumor, like, that's not good. But like, it just hadn't quite fully connected in the office yet to cancer. Tumor and cancer didn't quite coexist in my eye yet because it was like an eye cancer. Like what? Like that just didn't exist for me. I've never heard of this. Um, I, I guess apart from retinoblastoma, which I know occurs in children, but, but even that I hadn't heard nearly very much about. Um, so it was a complete shock, honestly, like just for me getting that initial diagnosis. Um, fast forward a little bit and I had, you know, another appointment with an, uh, an retina specialist who treats the cancer. And then, um, after that appointment and walking through, you know, what do we do? Um, what kind of treatment options do we have? Which they were basically telling me we can do plaque or we can do a nucleation. Um, it was large enough for that. I didn't feel ready for a nucleation. And he was telling me, I feel confident to do, I feel confident to do plaque. I've treated tumors this big before with plaque and I, I feel good doing this. Um, he just basically told me it was on the cusp of like, well, we could go either way. Um, kind of on that border. And it was also located at the front, which he said had really good access for doing a plaque. Um, anyway, I ended up wanting a second opinion because, you know, when you get that final diagnosis of, yes, you have ocular melanoma and here's how it can go. Uh, I remember someone in the office telling me like, cause I was like, well, do I have to decide now? And he said, well, you need to do it soon because if you don't, you're going to die. Like, like those were the words out of his mouth. And I was like, well, thanks for being blunt. <laughs> um, and all this time too, like all of these tests, all of this stuff that's happening in this office, because it was the pandemic, I'm by myself. Like I can have a care person in the room with me with the doctor when we finally sit down with the doctor, but like all of the tests, all of the things that are happening behind the scenes, it's all just me by myself. Um, which I think, you know, now maybe that's, maybe that's still normal. I don't know, but it felt really isolating at the time. Um, and then I ended up meeting with my next doctor and choosing to stay with her. Um, and she's actually the doctor who ended up referring me two years later for a nucleation because turns out front tumors, anterior tumors are not so treatable with plaque in the sense that they deteriorate the eye tissue too fast um, because the plaque or they can. Um, so my plaque ended up deteriorating my eye enough that I had a nucleation two years after plaque um, or a little over two years. Um, and that was not because of pain. Thankfully it was, it was simply because the eye itself was kind of deteriorating, coming apart and exposing the tumor underneath the sclera, which was a little freaky. Um, anyway, so that was, that was what it looked like kind of just from the beginning to fast forward to now. And, um, I think some in, some in our community know that I have metastatic disease or a metastatic diagnosis. Uh, that was a year ago and I am a year out from that. And I am currently cancer free. So we're going to cross our fingers and cross all the things that that continues to stay that way with the things that I've been doing, um, through just my doctors and my naturopath oncology team. So that's where I'm at.
Thank you so much for sharing that. That's it's such a common story. Um, you know, thinking that there is a detached retina, this sudden loss of vision, and the seeing multiple doctors, I think these are so frequently part of the uveal melanoma patient story. And, and many times I get people into my office who really still don't quite know what's going on, or they've been told that they have a tumor, but they didn't understand that that was a cancer. And, and that's really something I've learned over time that that you really have to say the word cancer for somebody to understand because it doesn't always sink in otherwise. And the reality is, for, for better or worse, we don't want a lot of patients to be affected by this, but most of the time the doctor who picks this up may never have seen this before. And they're scared and they don't know how to have this conversation either. And so unfortunately, sometimes it doesn't come out the way that we wish it would. And they try to rush and get you to the next person who maybe knows a little bit more. But it does feel abrupt. It does feel terrifying. And and the don't Google is, is such good advice, but it makes you want to do it all that much more. Well, yeah, especially just, going into a no. weekend, right? You go, you go into this, which I can't tell you how many patients I know who have said I was like, my tumor was found on a Friday. And the next time I could see like an ocular oncologist or get into whoever I travel to, to go to get treated, it was like a Monday or a Tuesday the next week. So like, of course you're sitting all weekend, like twiddling your thumbs, trying to stay busy, like wondering, what is this? What does it mean? <laughs> Google, do you have answers? Wait, I don't like those answers. Yeah, I, I think that's so common. And I think the waiting to get that information is just one of the worst parts of this diagnosis, that you are not right away there in the place that can give you all the answers that you need. Yeah. Oh, it's so tricky. And and like you said, it's it's not it's not like it's anyone's fault. Like it's it's not like I mean, it's such a rare cancer. And so the doctors who do find it, the optometrists, the ophthalmologists, the retina specialists who you might be referred to, they probably have never seen it either. So like they're just as shocked and confused and it's just as, you know, it's just as abrupt for them as it is for you. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it definitely does feel a little, you know, from a patient perspective that that feels really unsettling, I think is maybe a good, good word for it. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I would say a good portion of my patients have even this other story where they didn't really have symptoms or they got a scratch mm -hmm. on their eye and went in, or they just wanted a pair of new glasses and they went in and this is completely unexpected. And, you know, they, then they have to live with this fear until they can get to the right place. And then it's a well, lot I can of work. See those patients. No, I, I just can see those patients maybe being, I guess, almost scared of the routine things in the future, right? Like that, you know, the routine eye exams, just the basic dilated check that those now they go, those go from comfortable and normal and just routine to this is now something that could potentially be scary for me. And, and I could see it translating to the, you know, the routine exams of other areas of health too, like that, that that would stop feeling safe. Um, I think, you know, just that feeling of safety being gone, you know, that, that feeling of feeling safe in your own body definitely goes away as soon as you get this diagnosis. Um, maybe not entirely for everyone, but like I think that across the board initially, it's very much a common feeling. Yeah, I think um, it's so important to talk about that too. So as a physician, like, you know, by the time they get to you, like you said, they have sometimes seen multiple providers. They've gotten the news maybe in the worst way as possible. Um, 
they've had routine eye exams, they've had potentially no symptoms and they're completely shocked, you know, all of these potential scenarios. When they get to you, what do you like to do or what do you think is most um, most helpful as a physician to just kind of, I guess, almost like start with a fresh slate even, um, just so that you can kind of reboot, like, okay, this is where we're at and this is what we need to do. Yeah, I really do. You know, no matter how many times they might have heard things from their other doctors that they've seen before, I, I really like to start from the beginning. And so, you know, I'll, I'll introduce myself, we'll say our hellos, I'll get my exam done, and then I want to have time to talk. I want to have time to have eye contact, and I love to talk with pictures. So I know, just as you talked about, it's so much work to get this diagnosis. You have to take so many images. It takes a long time. It's not always comfortable. So then I want to show them, you know, what we worked for. I want them to be able to see for themselves what's going on. And I think that's really important. So I will always pull up our pictures of the eyes. I will show them this is your normal eye. This is where your center of vision lives. This is where your optic nerve is that connects to the brain. And this is your other eye. And then this is where we're concerned. And I, I love to be able to point to these spots. And then I'll go through and I'll show them this is how it looks on an ultrasound. And I'll orient them. And, and we have models of the eye in our clinics. So I can say this is where the front is. And this is way in the back. This is how big this is. And in reality, maybe this is the size of a dime or a nickel. And I try to equate it with something that's a little more tangible so that yeah. we can understand. And I think that's so important. The other things that I really, really want to do for my patients, two of the most common questions I get, one is, you know, why wasn't this found before? Because so many patients do go in for routine eye exams. It's one thing when you have the person who hasn't been in 20 years, and then we say, oh, this, you know, that's such a bummer. But when you have somebody who goes every year, and then they say, well, how did this suddenly show up? I like to talk about details and, and location. Sometimes when you have something at the front of the eye, like yours was at the front of the eye, those things can hide even on a really good eye exam. And so I like to explain, you know, why did that happen? Why could there have been something there that was missed even by a really good doctor? And then the other thing is patients want to know, what did I do that made this happen? And I always want people to know you didn't do anything. You didn't not do anything. Like, this is not your fault. You don't have to feel guilty. You know, I get, you know, is this because I smoked or, you know, I, I'm so healthy. I do all of these things. I exercise. I eat right. Like, what what did I do wrong? And there's, I think, this tremendous feeling of, of guilt. Like, you might have brought this on yourself. And really, that's not the case. The reality is, you know, a nevus or a freckle in the eye is really common. About one in 10 people will have one of these. And most of the time, it's just bad luck that one in eight or 9,000 of them becomes a cancer. And, you know, I talk about the rare scenarios. There are some very rare genetic scenarios like the BAC1 tumor predisposition syndrome or MBD4 that we're learning about. So I ask about family history and I offer genetic testing if that's appropriate. But most of the time, there really isn't a good reason. Most of the time, it really isn't fair and it sucks. And I think it's important to acknowledge that it sucks. Yeah. No, I feel like that's that's such a good way to put it. And I feel like that um, the way that you're talking about this, like I, I can just kind of picture like, you know, and I'm just imagining, you know, myself with you as my doctor and, and not that my doctor did anything wrong. I honestly, I picked her because she was so empathetic, so compassionate, so detail oriented. And she was willing to just sit there and talk with me as long as I needed. 
And I think that that's, that's kind of one of those things that, that we need, right? A lot of the times medicine is so slow slammed with patients that, that it's just fast, right? You have 15 minutes with your doctor and, and everything goes so rapidly. But I think that that's maybe one of the benefits of such a rare field is that you guys do specialize so highly and you do get, um, I guess it's maybe, you know, depending on the preference of the doctor, but you do have that option as a doctor that you can be a little more selective and you can take that time with the patient. Um, and, and I can, I can tell just from, from you talking about this, that you find that incredibly valuable both to yourself and to the patient and, and that ultimately like helping to make sure the patient is, I mean, as, as comfortable, I say comfortable in quotes, like as comfortable as possible with this diagnosis, but also just feels acknowledged and heard. Um, this isn't on our like discussion question, but is there anything, you know, as you're going into this first initial diagnosis, um, appointment with them where you're really covering, okay, this is the official diagnosis. Like I can officially tell you, you do have ocular melanoma of, you know, whatever kind, choroidal, ciliary body, iris, um, and that we do need to treat it before you go into treatment options. Like, do you, um, do you ever suggest to patients that they, you know, potentially take notes or that they, um, use a recording device on their phone, like just to be able to record what we talk, you know, what you talk about, um, or does that, not really typically come up. I just am curious. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think a lot of times that's such a shock that that that's not where our mind is. And mm-hmm. and I just expect, you know, I'm going to say this huge barrage of information. Uh, we have a really great patient pamphlet that I give to everybody. When we've looked at the pictures, I always allow people to take pictures on their cell phone of what their eye looks like. So they have that documented for them. Um, but I just expect we're going to talk about this again. We're going to talk about this again and again and again. And if I have to go through the same information five times, that is fine. I have no problem with that because so many times you say the word cancer and no other words go in. And I, I know that. But the other thing that I do for all my patients is I really do encourage them to come with somebody, to come with a spouse or with family Um, because I think it's really great to have other ears to hear. So I've had plenty of times where there are three or four extra people and we're getting extra chairs to put them in the room. Um, And in the pandemic, this was always a thing because you had to get exceptions for this, but there there are always exceptions to have people support my patients and my practice um, because I think that's so important just to have them be there with you and because they're not as in shock as you are. So they can take in that information a little more readily. And oftentimes it's the family member that's there with the notebook taking notes. No, I think that's such a powerful thing. I know that in the Facebook groups, at least what we see is we see a lot of people suggesting, you know, take notes, make sure, you know, you're going to forget all this information, but I love, I love that you just, you just as a physician expect that, like you said, that when you hear cancer, not much else goes in and that, you know, the, the options, the treatments, the biopsy for prognostication, all of the different systemic monitoring, all of that just doesn't sink in initially. And it takes multiple, multiple times, multiple moments of, of you repeating it or the patients asking questions. And so I think that it's, um, I, I just can't tell you how many patients that I talk to who they feel somehow like it's bad that they can't remember what their, what their first doctor appointment was, or that they just feel like, oh, I should be able to remember this. I just can't remember anything. And it really is, I mean, we, we probably would need maybe a psychologist to come and explain this a little better. I think maybe the one that we had, I believe she talked about this idea that when you, when you get this diagnosis, oftentimes your brain is kind of a sieve that it, 
it just kind of everything just falls out and the big stuff stays, right? The big stuff, the cancer, the, well, I need my eye removed if that's the case, or I need this type of radiation or whatever, that big stuff, that main idea stuff stays, but it's the finer details that tend to slip through and that you just don't always remember right away. Um, and that's perfectly normal and acceptable. I think that's what we're trying to get at here is just, a, you know, from that, from that physician perspective, from a patient perspective, it really is okay. If that's the case, if there's nothing wrong with you. You've just got a traumatic diagnosis and it's really normal, um, really normal to have to have follow-ups and, and to, I guess, to not feel guilty, right? Like to, to reach out to your doctor, if you have questions, like there's nothing wrong with reaching out and getting clarifying questions answered, even if it's you know, the day before you're scheduled for plaque surgery or nucleation surgery, if you have second, second doubts or, um, you're second guessing yourself, anything like that, there's nothing wrong with contacting your doctor with that kind of question. Um, yeah. Anyway, I just, I think maybe I'm, I'm maybe a little unique sometimes in the sense that I don't think that everyone thinks the way that I do when I, when I approach a medical situation and maybe that's because I'm further into it. Um, and so I, I approach it differently now than I used to, but but I definitely, I guess I remember feeling hesitant about calling my doctor about questions to begin with. I don't anymore, but, but initially you feel a little hesitant because everything's new. It's a new person, but it's also a new person who, I mean, I think you talked in one of the previous episodes I had you on. You're like, I want to be able to see the patients, but I want to see them in 20 years. And I want to be able to tell them, you know, in 15, 20 years, you're in the clear. Um, and to have that kind of a relationship, right? Where, you know, this is the doctor I'm going to stick with. For the rest of my life. Um, anyway, okay. Well, let's talk a little about the treatment options and like how do you present that information to patients? Um, now that you've gone through all the details, you've covered the this isn't your fault. Um, you know, what do you what do you go through as far as talking about these options for treatment and how do you present that? So yeah, we always have several different options for treatment. It's it's rare that we're backed into a corner and the only safe option is a nucleation. Um, that's always one of the hardest conversations to have um, when you really have to say the only safe thing I can do for you is remove your eye. That's probably the most heartbreaking thing. Most conversations are a little better news because patients are often afraid that that's what I'm going to tell them we have to do. And so it's nice to be able to say, you know, we, we can back that up. And actually this is small enough that I think we can safely manage this with radiation. And we have several different options for radiation the primary two, which would be plaque radiation or proton beam radiation. And these two things are actually a really important discussion these days because potentially, although we're still working on what our evidence is here, there may be some circumstances under which proton might have a better vision outcome than plaque, or there may be some patients for whom plaque is a better option than proton. And so I think it's important to talk about the differences in risk. Proton has really strong radiation on the way in, but it doesn't have an exit dose. So you can control potentially a little bit differently where that radiation is hitting versus a plaque is going to have these circular radiation fields that get a little bit less the farther away you go from the plaque. And so we're starting to have conversations. If your tumor is kind of close to your center of vision, can we sharp edge out your center of vision with the proton beam field of radiation and potentially preserve more eyesight for you? Or if something's around your optic nerve, we know that the optic nerve is actually larger on the outside of the eye than on the inside of the eye. So sometimes it might be hard to get a plaque really tight to the tumor margins there. So is proton safer for tumor control in those situations? 
or for some small tumors that are farther away from the center of vision, I may, maybe can go a little lower on my dose and know that I'm going to still have a good response from a plaque than I can with proton. And so that may be a little bit better. So there's really pros and cons to all of these different things. And so it can be a detailed discussion, especially depending on where the tumor is. For things that are really small or indeterminate, then we start having conversations about things like lasers or things like the aura trial. And is this right for you? We know that things outside of the aura trial that we've tried in the past for lasers, maybe the risk of tumor recurrence is higher. It's not my gold standard of care to really kill a cancer, but we definitely talk about these things. We go through the whole gamut of what are the risks to vision with all of these different treatments? What's the long-term outlook? Um, and these are things that I expect are kind of in one ear and out the other, but it helps to talk it through for someone to really come to a decision of this time-sensitive thing that we need to decide soon what we're going to do next for mm -hmm. this tumor. I think one of the really big points that I emphasize over and over again, though, to my patients that I think is great to mention in this kind of platform is that removing an eye doesn't necessarily reduce the risk that the cancer is going to show up somewhere else in your body. And I think this is a common misconception because I have a lot of patients who say, well, if you take it out, then it's gone and it's done. And then I will never have to worry about it coming back. And I so wish that were true. I would love for that to be true. But the reality is we actually have really good data that whether we remove the eye or whether we do radiation, the risk of something spreading is not going to change. And so I think I always bring my patients back to we know we're going to watch the rest of your body no matter what. We're going to talk about this prognostic test and we're going to do the best that we can to prevent metastasis no matter what. But today, what we have to make a decision on is really what we want to do for your eye. And so we have to keep these things separate. I think that's really important to understand. Yeah, no, that's for sure important. And I, I think it's important that we kind of cover that a lot of what we're talking about right now, like we're kind of covering multiple scenarios, but most of this is taking place in that first appointment, um, in that very first appointment. And obviously we can cover it. We can retouch it in, in follow-up appointments before, you know, whatever treatment happens. But I think the gist of what we're trying to show here is that there's, there's the talk about, you know, getting the diagnosis and the feelings and the empathizing, but there's also the talking about the treatment and making sure that patients follow out or they leave with a, both a plan um, knowledge of what's going on and also a level of follow-up like around things like the biopsy for prognostication, systemic monitoring. Um, we've got, you know, other, other parts of the follow-up that would include the radiation, like side effect management, like, and those are, those are things that, that you would potentially touch on a little in this first appointment, but they're maybe not the main focus is what I'm hearing. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's just such a tremendously large amount of information and, and as you know, when you're feeling like you've just been given a cancer diagnosis, it's not always the right time to hear all of that information. So I want to give as much as I can without making it even more overwhelming than it already is that first day. No, that makes total sense. So one of the questions we're getting from Facebook is uh, just asking that, um, just asking, you know, do you, do you prefer to talk about the biopsy? before treatment, like this biopsy option for prognostication, um, how do you approach talking about that with your patients? Yeah. So I, I always talk about that also in this first visit. I mean, it's really a lot. And, and just as you said, I so value having that time. My clinic does not always or often run on time at all. 
but it's really because I, I feel that it's so important not to cut people off and not to shorten this conversation. Um, so I, I do talk about that. We kind of go through and we get an idea of, okay, what treatment do we think we're heading toward? And then I'll usually say, okay, so now that we know where we're heading, we have an option to do this biopsy. And it's it's not really to tell us what the diagnosis is. We've already found what the diagnosis is, but it's really to tell us what is the risk of cancer spread someday. And so depending on what we're doing, if we're removing an eye, then it's really easy. Then we can send a slice of your tumor from the eye that we removed to get the test. No, no extra time or effort for you. If we're keeping an eye, then we usually talk about the risks of biopsy, what that can sometimes mean for your vision, what that can sometimes mean for if you need second procedures later, because there's always a small risk. Anytime we do a biopsy, we do have to take a tiny needle and, and suction out some tumor cells. And sometimes some of the ways we approach this are to go through the retina. The retina doctors might do this actually sometimes with a vitrectomy. So in some hands, it's a bigger surgery. In some hands, I do a fine needle aspiration biopsy. So there are many different ways to do this. And it's important the patient understands exactly how their doctor is going to do that and exactly what risks that might come with. Anytime we're going into a tumor, there's always a chance that it can bleed. So I talk about, are you on blood thinners? Because that's important to me. I can put a plaque on, I can put markers on for proton on blood thinners, but I don't love to do a tumor biopsy on blood thinners because this can make a big difference in how much you bleed inside the eye. And a big bleed inside the eye can cause big scarring that can cause vision loss right away that doesn't come back. So we always have to talk about that. Anytime we go through the retina and we make a tiny hole in the retina, we have this risk that we're going to end up with a retinal tear type of retinal detachment. And that risk is pretty small, but I always have to cover that because there's a small chance that if that hole doesn't heal, that we'll need a second retina surgery to reattach the retina. So these are important things to think about. And then the other important thing is what is that information going to mean to us and what are we going to do with it later? And so I talk about if we're in a high risk category, that means we're going to want to scan your lungs or liver more like every three or four months, a lot more often than if we're in a medium risk or a low risk category. And that might mean that you're eligible for clinical trials of medicines to try to reduce that risk of spread. And if we don't have this information, then you probably can't have those types of things. And then it's important to know that we can only get that information accurately before we treat the cancer. Once the cancer is treated, we can't go back and get it later. So Unfortunately, it's, it's this other extra choice that we really have to make in a time-sensitive fashion before we treat the tumor. Mm -hmm. So I know you talked, you know, generally about the risks that, um, that the biopsy can hold mostly, you know, to things like bleeding in the eye, things like that. Um, there is definitely noise. Um, we'll put it that way. There's definitely noise on social media that talks about this idea that, oh, you know, if somebody is told they can't have a biopsy, Somewhere in, in the mix of this, many patients have interpreted that to mean that that means that, you know, their tumor would have spread, that it would have, the biopsy would have caused the tumor to spread, to activate it in a way that it actually is more active and goes and spreads to uh, the rest of the body. So can you maybe dispel that rumor a little bit? Because everything that the research tells us says that that's not the case. Yeah, that's, that's really not the case. You know, can we have accidents where someone doesn't know there's a tumor and they put a vitrectomy port through a tumor and that causes the cancer to come outside the eye. Yes. And 
I think all of us have at least heard of that happening somewhere at some point. But when we know there's a tumor, when we're doing a biopsy intentionally, and when it's in the hands of a trained ocular oncologist who's used to doing this, we really don't believe that doing that biopsy increases the chance of cancer spread. And we take really good measures to make sure that we're going to be safe about this. So if we're going through the white of the eye, the sclera directly into the tumor, I always do freezing directly around that needle hub before I come out of the eye. So no cancer cells can escape the eye. If we're going in through the front of the eye or if they're doing a retina approach, those cancer cells aren't going to reach that little hole that we went into in the front of the eye. So we know how to take all of the safety measures and there's nothing about puncturing a little hole and suctioning out some cells of the tumor that's going to make it more likely to spread to other parts of your body. So I would absolutely never say I don't want to have a biopsy because I'm worried that it's going to increase the risk of cancer spread. I think it's very reasonable if you have a very small tumor, if it's in the center of your vision, if you say, you know, because it's small, I know it's probably low risk to spread anyway, and I would rather not take a risk of big bleeding by my center of vision, I think that's a very reasonable choice. But if you're young, if you have a large tumor, I would really recommend that this is great information to have because if we have a trial or if we have a drug that could reduce your risk of metastasis, I would really want you to be able to have that. Yeah, well, and and that is contingent oftentimes on what is your prognostication from the biopsy. Um, so. No, I just, I really wanted to have someone come on here and explain that because I've seen that just so many times the last couple of months in Facebook off and on. And I'm like, okay, we got to, we got to talk about this. Um, and it goes back to what you said too, the difference, like kind of the difference between plaque and radiation or plaque radiation, proton beam and nucleation, that that isn't reducing the risk of spread. Like it's still largely the same either way. And that, um, and you can maybe just correct me if I'm correct me if I'm misinterpreting this, but that generally means that if the cancer does show up later, you know, whether it's five years, two years, or 15 years later, it's not because it spread after or during the treatment. It's because it already had done so. We just didn't know it at the time. It had, you know, seeded in the body well before we ever found it in the eye. Yeah, that's that's really what most of us believe. And I think you're gonna see the face of how we monitor that shifting rapidly over the next couple of years, um, because we can detect cancer DNA in the blood now. And I think we're going to eventually have tests that actually allow us to pick up this cancer spread that may have already occurred before we can actually see it on our scans. And I think we're going to be able to treat earlier because of that. So I really think that the game is going to change. But I think you're absolutely right. I don't think it's coming from the eye. I don't think it's coming from any procedure that was done. For whatever reason, this cancer can hide in the bloodstream and evade our ability to detect it for many, many, many years. Yeah. And it's, it's so trippy. Right. And that can, that can go back to kind of what we talked about at first is of like, well, did I do something? Did I, did I do something wrong? Did I not do something? And, and when you put it that way, it, it kind of both feels a little bit like a, I don't know, like, like a, okay, well, like I, I didn't have a chance at, at knowing, you know, until we have more information, like you said, until we have more information where we can do this in a routine blood exam and it can just be a, okay, you have a risk of this or that. Um, until we have that, or we have a way to detect it floating around in the bloodstream, there really is no way to know if it's there or not until it, it is detectable, um, whether it's detectable in the eye or detectable somewhere else because of metastases. And 
and it really, I mean, it, but as a patient that can, that can really feel a little bit like, so I, I had no chance almost, I guess is kind of the phrase that comes to mind is, is like, okay, so like I was, I, I, there's no way for us to have known. And so when it was found in my eye and it was already this big and the location sucked because of whatever reason, like it, it just kind of, I'm trying to think of like the way to put this, but it generally just feels kind of like I was just, I was screwed before I knew it <laughs> um, in some ways, or at least, you know, maybe just that, that, that prognosis risk factor was already there, even though I didn't know it. Um, and that can, that can feel a little defeating, I think, to some patients for sure. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely correct. That is how it feels. And that's sometimes how it feels to us too. You know, we, the best thing I can do is, is treat a tumor when it's the smallest that I can find it, but it's But sucks. finding it that small every time. Right. It sucks that I can't go back in time and, and make everything smaller. It sucks that no matter what I do for the eye, it's not necessarily going to change that metastatic outcome. But I think the game is changing. I think we're getting yeah. drugs that work. I really think it's happening now. And it's going to look yeah. so much different in five, 10 years. Well, I'm just remembering you talking earlier this year, like just even just if we go back to, I, I feel like even just the summer, like when we had you come on for the ion research convention, like that we did our small seminar here, like you were just talking about how like things are rapidly changing. And I think those were maybe the things that we can now talk about now because they've been presented on. Um, but even back in January, when we had you come on and talk about the living library, like that you're creating and the research that you're doing there and, and what you hope that will come of that, like you already had this kind of idea of like, things are changing so fast. And I think if we really look back just at this last 12 months, like so much good has come in the world of ocular melanoma. And it is, it is no longer accurate to say that if you get this diagnosis, you know, that this is end all like worst case scenario, there's nothing we can do for you. Like, like there are so many good options. Are there as many as maybe other cancers? No, but like we have so many more than we used to. And there's just a lot more rapidly happening. Um, so I hope that we can maybe leave on a hopeful note with that, of that idea that like, there is so much that is coming and I really cannot wait to see what 2024 brings. Me too. With, with what we've done in just one year. I mean, you're so right. I'm so glad you put that into perspective because if just one year can do this much. Just think about where we're going to be in another 12 months from now. Yeah, exactly. It's it's so powerful. Well, Dr. Dablin, I feel like this has been so wonderful and I want to be respectful of your time. Um, as well. um, so is there anything you want to end with other than what we just had? I think this has been fantastic and, and I'm so thankful again for the opportunity to do this. I hope that people are able to connect with this and, you know, I love hearing your story. I love hearing my patients' stories and, and I hope I get to hear all of the stories changing over the next several years. And as we end on this hopeful note, you know, I hope that yeah, I'm going to get that. to fulfill that dream of seeing all of my patients reach their 15 year cancer free mark. No, that would be amazing. Love, love, uh, love that. So thank you again. Thank you. Those of us, um, those of you, not us, <laughs> those of you who are listening in on Facebook, um, please share this with your physicians. If you like, we had a couple people come in with comments saying, you know, oh, there, there's still doctors and oncologists giving 
giving inaccurate info about the biopsy, please send this to them. Um, help inform your physicians, um, help inform their teams so that so that more patients can, or just you know, share, share it with patients in their offices so that they can hear from other doctors. And I guess I did, I did want to ask you um, if, if you have a sec for one last question. How do you, um, when you have a patient and you're going through this initial appointment, do you ever at any point suggest that they get a second opinion or offer that as an option? Because I do think that there's, there's some noise here on, on the Facebook talking about like, oh, I wish I had shopped around. Like Dr. Dalvin isn't so far from me. Wish I had gone to her. Like, <laughs> um, anyway, so what's your perspective on that? Yeah. I think if you ever feel uncomfortable, it is always okay to get a second opinion. Um, you know, most of us who do this all the time, we know each other. Most of us think very similarly, but we are not all the same person. We're not all the same personality we're not all the right fit for every individual and you have to feel comfortable. I'm never going to feel offended if I'm not the person who makes you feel most comfortable or if you don't want to wait for me when I'm behind, I completely understand. So, you know, I think you have to be your own advocate. You don't have to feel guilty if a doctor's office is not the right place for you. You know, there, there are places that do this. It's not, only that one option. You know, I've had plenty of people get on a plane and fly to Boston or fly to Philadelphia because they want to hear from somebody else what they would do. And and so I think never feel bad if you want a second opinion. Never feel bad if you want a third opinion. It's your body, it's your life, and you have to feel like you have the right fit. Yeah, such a powerful thing. Um, and then the last question, we, we referenced the living library. So I think I, I can point you guys back to the podcast episode, but if people wanted more information on the living library itself, um, how would they best get in touch with you or your team? Yeah. Um, so, you know, my, my email, if you email me, I can pass it on to our lab team, but my email is pretty easy. It's just dalvin.lauren at mayo.edu. And I'm really happy to say that we just got a modification approved where we can do emergency acceptance of samples coming from anywhere. So that's really that's exciting. That's so exciting. That's so exciting. Okay. So yeah, for those of you who want more information on the Living Library, head back to January of this year on the podcast episodes. You can listen um, to, I want to say it's like episode 40 something, maybe 50 something. It's pretty close to that area. I'm like ballparking it. Um, but if you head over to the podcast, you can listen there. You can learn about it. She presented a whole webinar on it in January. And then like she said, email her directly at dalvin.lauren at mayo.edu. Um, and with that, we will go ahead and end and we will see you guys next time. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast brought to you by Castle Biosciences. Please be sure to subscribe. And if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Acure Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.